you know, by the 2000s, the economy had kind of gone bust in Japan and Nissan was broke and it was kind of on the, the healing path under Gon. Um, if, but if the 90s were the night out, the, 2000, the early 2000s were kind of the hangover. I would agree with that sentiment. Fun. That's a pretty good deal. And, and there still were desirable cars, but like we got the S2000, the 350Z. That's, yeah. you know, it was kind yeah. of the end of the Japan only crazy cars. Right. Welcome back to the Restricted Performance Podcast. I am here once again with the Honorable... Barack Obama? Yes. Um, Whoa. <laughs> I, I am here joined once again by New York industry big shot Ross Littman, as he was described this week. Yeah, you know, uh, shout out to Gabe and Jarek. Thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, I am not a big shot. Um, it's a little weird to hear New York industry big shot, as if New York is a as an industry so uh, uh but yeah so that was fun those guys are, are are great i wish them luck on starting uh kind of getting their new site off the ground and, and whatnot totally uh you know who knows what they'll do with that but i'm i'm looking forward to reading more from them always so. always good to have more people out there creating stuff writing yeah. and well, competition makes the market better as they say or something like that i don't know 100 you know adam smith's back got scratched who knows um but anyway capitalism uh so, so today's yeah. today's topic our topic uh today is going to be jdm cars it is a wide weird and wacky world um i think you know as enthusiasts we often look for stuff that's a little bit different maybe off the beaten path it's kind of hard to argue that jdm cars are off the beaten path anymore with how the last 10 years of importing have gone and how popular they've become but there are still just so many fun things out there mm -hmm. um, but before we dive into that uh ross uh we each have a couple uh personal updates just of what we've been driving um ross do you want to tell us about the hot volvos that you drove yesterday hot volvos there's a term nobody ever talks about um it's like saying True. man this antiquing is exciting Lu lukewarm volvos lukewarm no they were pretty good um so yeah, I, I have a friend of mine who works for Volvo slash Polestar. Um, he is not the Polestar, but he works for Polestar. Um, but anyway, uh, so he has, uh, him and his partner recently picked up a 23 V60 uh, T8 Polestar engineered. I love that car. It's a great car. And it's got the big six piston Akabonos in front. And then it's like a single piston, tiny little brake in the back, but apparently doesn't need it. Um, so this car, for people who may not know, is a plug-in hybrid V60 wagon with orange slash gold seat belts and gold. Yep. big brakes in the front. It is about 45 miles, 40 to 45 miles of electric range, 420-ish mm -hmm. horsepower. More. It's 455 horsepower. Oh, yeah. With, so um, recently updated yeah, to and, 455. And 400, uh, sorry, 523 pound-feet of torque combined, although as with many PHEVs, it's sometimes difficult to measure that total output depending on the drivetrain configuration. So because it's a front-wheel drive-based vehicle, I think that's a best estimate from Volvo, but mm -hmm. uh, only because I have experience in powertrain. Yeah, so it's a, a Haldex-based all-wheel drive right, with right. A, a front bias. Actually... A little bit different even because they're using the EDM at the back, the drive motor at the back to make the all-wheel drive system. So I don't think there's a physical connection between the front and the e wheel. EDM at the back, is that a subwoofer setup? No, it's electric drive module. Okay. Um, or drive motor, one of the two, I forget. Uh, I think it's electric drive motor. So anyway, so it's 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 similar arrangement to some of the Toyota hybrids where you have that electric motor at the back providing rear drive. Um, I think the electric motor on its own is 143 horsepower, so it's reasonable, and it's like some decent amount of torque, mid twos, I think, or high twos for torque. Not bad. No, not bad at all. It's uh, 0 to 60 is rated about 4.2 seconds from Volvo, so it's quite brisk. Um, the, yeah. car, the car just has amazing reserves of torque, like incredible torque all the time. It's just a little peculiar because when the electric motor kicks in, 
the calibration is fine between the two powertrains, but it doesn't rev out. Like, you know, your, your amount of throttle you're applying doesn't necessarily correspond to how fast the engine's going to spin. The, right. ice, the ice engine, the gas engine. It's more like a torque so request pedal. It's a very strange feeling at first, um, but it's extremely quiet. You know, I drove, my friend Thomas, who has the car, brought many, you know, years ago, um, borrowed from work, a 19 model year T8 Polestar. So that was the first, one of the first ones. Right. And just not good. Like the, the drivetrain calibration, it felt like the two drivetrains were fighting each other front to yeah. rear. It felt like they didn't know what one wanted to do. So the car kind of felt like out of sorts and upset in corners. The brakes were incredibly touchy and un, just unusable in traffic. Yeah. Um, and, and in general, just you could not, you could barely graze. And you weren't pedal. a big fan of the suspension on that 2019 either. Were no, you? it dived and it pitched and it rolled a lot. And um, the car just felt unfinished. I mean, it just really felt weird. So... But they've been, done a lot of calibration and chassis updates. This car feels much more dialed. Yeah. So it's very, you know, the battery's big and heavy. So the car feels really planted and solid on the road. What does the car weigh in total? 45, 46 I think it's like around that. Yeah, it's yep. pretty chunky. But it's... But, I mean, for a PHEV station wagon, you know, that's about what you'd big expect. Big station wagon. Big station wagon. I yeah, mean, so. this is basically the modern version of my daily driver, the that's 2005 right. V70R. But that's with right. A lot more yeah. tech. So, like, the chassis is much more composed. The car corners nice and flat. There's not really an excessive amount of body roll. This car comes on manual Ulins. It's pronounced Ulins, not Olins. Volvo uh, loves their Ulins suspension yeah. that you have to, like, disassemble the car to adjust. Yeah, it's got Ulins coilovers, which are very expensive, but they're manually adjustable, which is crazy to me. There's no adaptive suspension. So, but, you know, they've left it in the middle setting so mm -hmm. i i'm okay with that the car the compliance the is ride. excellent okay yeah i probably wouldn't even touch it honestly you're not tracking a car that's 4550 pounds certainly not a wagon and handling uh, like wise this. it felt well damped it's very well damped i'd argue it's probably better damped than a lot of modern bmw products frankly that is not um, a high bar it well it should be but it's not uh and the volvo just felt really composed and quite incredible cabin nvh really quiet comfortable um great sound system sublime so much speed i mean you breathe on the pedal it'll do 90 plus easily i mean it's you just know. boatloads of torque yeah. i yeah. would imagine it looks great you know it's got really handsome styling that's a few years quite a few years old now but it's very nice looking nonetheless oh it's such the, a good looking car the tech is good no wireless carplay which is fine i don't really i find the wired carplay is more reliable anyway are they still doing that android auto exclusive thing it's okay uh what do you mean exclusive well like in my mom's xc40 recharge for example it's a google-based system yeah so it still, doesn't play nice with it's car still play. a google-based system but there is carplay and it works fine okay um and the only thing i don't like is that the climate is touchscreen and that they have gotten rid of the old drive mode scroll wheel mm. on the physical dash which is a real pain in the ass if you want to switch modes you have to yeah. set touch a gear, go into a menu, get away from CarPlay, change the drive mode. It's like you basically you have to choose the drive mode you want and then don't touch it again for the rest of the trip. Volvo has you know. really gone to the iPad and the dash in the last couple of years. But there's no hotkeys for stuff. Right. Well, it's it's disappointing yeah. to me because yeah. they had really good analog controls and they've moved away from well, them. Especially as people who argue for safety. Right. Right. This is there's just no way this is as safe as 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 physical buttons. There's no way. You know, no. so, uh, and I'm sorry, you know, I mean, I have friends who work at NHTSA, I have friends who are in crash, who are crash engineers, Marcus, I, uh, but, um, they, they acknowledge it's, you know, it's distracting. I mean, this, yeah. this is really a car though, that like as enthusiasts, we should be excited about. And I don't hear people talking about it. I mean, it yeah. is expensive. It's 70 grand, ah, $7,500 Lease. lease tax credit though on right pre and there's incentives going on right now um so you know they i mean they work for volvo so they got a few thousand off not much but a, a couple of thousand off um but you know the old if you, hometown you, discount well if you also find some good deals right now i mean the card and msrp of 72 i think they're leasing it for the equivalent of 57 grand which is like Come on, under, I mean, under 60 grand. For, for a 450 horsepower station wagon that gets 30 plus miles per gallon, hauls yeah. all your shit.
looks great. I mean, these days, 57,000 buys you like a 340i, maybe. I don't think so. I, not even. So, no, I not mean, even. There is nothing out there that does what, that really competes with this. Right. There's a, you know, you have at a little bit higher, I mean, a lot well, higher Vol price Volvo point. Is, I think Volvo is killing wagons after 24. Yeah, so, so I mean, I haven't yeah. heard that yet, but if... If and when that happens, it'll be a very, very sad day. Um, I question rumor. a lot of the, you know, decisions yeah. being made way at the top right now by the ownership of Volvo. So right. we'll see. Right. But um, cool car, really, the, really cool car. Cool car, and they're getting in a combined equivalent of thirty-nine miles a gallon, which is unbelievable. Yeah. So that's yeah, thirty, thirty to forty miles per gallon. Right. On at a, a fairly reasonable price after incentives. I mean, I. Can't wait till these are like 40k CPO. I hope. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Get the unlimited mileage warranty. So but yeah, I mean, for know. 57 brand new out the door, that's not bad. What and else did the, you drive? The other thing I drove was the Polestar 2, um, which is the refreshed one for 24. That's kind of rear-wheel drive bias now, or based, however you want to call it. Yep. Um, you know, the all-wheel drive system I think went from being 50-50 on the on the pre-refresh to 30-70 rear. Right. And it's standard rear-wheel drive if you don't get the dual motor. They have, and the bigger motor is now in the back. I believe so. Uh, and it's it's a hell of a lot. It's it's a hell of a car. I mean, the dual motor is 421 horsepower. Um, I will say that, you know, MSRP to MSRP, if you're looking new to new, it is $15,000 cheaper than the V60. It, it, it feels it in a lot of places. Mm. This one has a $3,900 leather option, which is bananas. Wow. Like, I can't imagine paying. The leather's like does, soft. does that include like a full leather dash? No. Leather. It's just the leather on the seats doors. and leather armrests. Just the seats. Okay. And armrests and like some of the some of the door panel. But it's, you know, the leather is soft. It's nice. It's not quite as soft as, say, like the highest quality M car leather right. or something in a Mercedes, probably, that's a little bit higher grade, like on an S Class. Well, we remember um, when BMW started charging, what was it, 2500 for leather on like the E90s? No, it was, it was like. Uh, leatherette versus. It was NACA part of. But it was, but it was part of a larger package so it was like you got more stuff than just the leather with it i thought you could buy the napa leather on its own but the le it leather on its own is like 15 okay change so but you know four grand i just thought was a little crazy like it's steep price of um, carhartt but the, <laughs> thank you but the but the leather is um the leather is nice it's soft enough i didn't love even with the windows closed and the glass roof on this example it there's a resonance that was occurring at speed, like wind noise hitting the car in a really funny way. Uh, and some of the plastics just don't feel that nice, like the horn button, the actual thing that covers the horn versus the one in the V60. It's it's like a very like yeah. rough grain plastic that's not nice. I've um, driven the previous, the yeah. pre-update um, pre Polestar 2. I'm actually getting the new one on, on Friday, so I'm excited to, to drive it. But I did feel like... You know, it feels like a mass-produced car. Yeah, it's better put together than say a Model Three, yes. which I've also driven. It feels sure. like a Volvo. I mean, it does feel like a Volvo. It does. Yeah. It does. Um, and I think it's funny that Polestar on TikTok is always trying to point out that they're not Volvo when, yeah, like, yeah. the the whole brand differentiation thing is kind of funny because I feel yeah. like Volvo has a lot of brand equity where Polestar you kind of still have to explain what it is. Yeah. And the easiest way to explain that is it's a Volvo high performance electric car. Basically, but they're I mean, trying to distance. I, I don't want to insult Volvo. Polestar too much because I know I know some of the people there and I I know they're working hard to try and differentiate. I'm not but, in, I'm not insulting yeah, them at all. But, I, it's just still something that you kind of have to explain. Oh, to I know, people. I know, I know. But the bottom line was it's extremely fast. Yes. Um, it gets decent enough mileage. I think Thomas told me he's getting about two sixty six on a charge in like not cold weather. In mm -hmm. cold weather, it's like two hundred to two ten. Um, it's fine. I I. I don't think it's, it doesn't feel like a $60,000 car to me. It's basically what an S40 would have been. So like when you put it in that context, right? Well, an, an S40 with 400 some odd horsepower that goes zero to 60 in, you know, four seconds. Yeah, I know. But so is the XC40 upon which it's a platform made. Yeah. So, you know, so like it would have been the sedan counterpart to that car. Sure. Um, I just think the styling's still a little frumpy. It's not as classically elegant as a Volvo, but 
but it's kind of got like Subaru Outback SUS from the back. Like it's like a lifted sedan. It's like, I don't know. It just doesn't work for me. The lift back is nice. It's a hatch. It's not a sedan sedan. Mm-hmm. Um, it's fine. I, I don't, I didn't love this kind of weird resonance thing. That really annoyed me. Um, I'm told it's much better than the pre-refresh, which didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, which was worse about that with well, road noise. Yeah. Those... And I also thought for an EV, it could have insulated against road noise much better. Okay. Personally. Yeah. I'll have to wait until Friday yeah. until I get my hands on mm-hmm. one. It is uh, always kind of weird to hear about these resonance things, just yeah. like it was with the Supra mirrors with the windows down, because yeah. these are the kind of things that you think if you're really road testing the yeah. car that you would come across pretty instantly. Yeah. But well, the, pl- the plus to... points are it's roomy. It's got, it's a right size. It's easy to park. It's, it's got plenty of great camera tech and everything. Uh, the infotainment, even though it's also Android based and looks similar to the Volvo's is actually easier to use in terms of the climate stuff. So that was really appreciated. And, and uh, uh, we and would, it? we would both rather have the hybrid wagon. Yeah, I would too. Some, I thought it was a much, incentives. it was, a, you know, the effect around town is the same. It, the hybrid wagon with more power ends up being a few grand cheaper. Yep. You know, it, 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 God, it, it looks so it good. It looks much good. It looks very good. And it's much really, good. Much good. It looks very good and it's very refined. So, um, I preferred the refinement of the V60. So. Sure. Well, anyway. that's, that is, a. Uh, that is a, a good review of two Volvo product. Oh, sorry. One Volvo and one Polestar. Polestar. I know they, I know they yeah. don't want to be considered in the same, uh, in the same boat. Yeah. So, but anyway. I had the opportunity to check out a Lamborghini Huracan Sterato briefly yesterday. Ooh. This is kind of the swan song oh, way to, to the steal, Huracan. Way to steal my thunder. Well, anyway. I didn't get to drive it. It was on loan to a colleague of mine. Mm-hmm. And... It is just the most hilarious car you've ever seen because it's a Lamborghini Huracan, but with all-terrain tires. I mean, this particular example had like a Lamborghini branded Yakima rack essentially on the top with another spare tire ratchet strapped mm-hmm. on there, which we can both imagine it. We can imagine the conversation that happened with the engineers when somebody from marketing said they wanted to add 200 pounds to the roof of the car. Granted, if you're off-road and really off the grid doing Paris Dakar or something, you probably want to spare, but it was only a front, so if you get a flat in the rear, you're kind of you screwed. Could, you could, I don't see why, you could put the, the, one of the fronts on the rear. Yeah, you, you could. It's, you can't put a rear on the front. No, no you, but, you could, you could yeah. probably limp it. I'm not yeah. sure the all-wheel drive system would love it, but... If you were really in a bind in the desert, you probably have bigger things to worry about, like mm-hmm. getting eaten by a snake. Yeah. But this car just provoked the craziest and coolest reactions from people, which you could probably expect. But, I mean, an off-road Lamborghini with a roof rack, all terrains. This car had just hilarious little quirks and features. I mean, it has like 20 badges that say Storado. All with horn, all with bull horns on the end of them. What brand is it? No, Lamborghini. <laughs> no, no. You know, no. Um, and Storado means dirt road, yeah. so that's kind of the the origin. The of wonderful, the, name. the wonderful thing Italian cars do, where they're named after ordinary terms, but they sound so exotic. They sound cool, exactly. Yes. Um, so. it also has a center-mounted ashtray, which is below. So ashtray. Yeah, so the ashtray looks like a fuel cap. You they have still to have reach... a smoker's package? Yes. So what? This is a $340,000 car, but because it's Italian, they still assume that people are going to smoke in it. I don't even think it's Ferraris also... have that standard in every, Everything that you touch in the interior is Alcantara, so I can't imagine how nasty the interior would get if you're, like, smoking cigs in this or thing. Or mud, or mud. Oh, okay. But All right, yeah. Puts, puts it's hilarious the because you have to, like, reach into no 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 behind the stock to get it it's it's very italian because like when the pope kicks the bucket and you know how the vatican they got to have the smoke the pillar of smoke come out the side of the car yeah yeah that's what they're they're going for right so if it's white smoke it's either a head gasket or the pope has been elected yes yeah Um, so anyway everyone kind of turns into a child when they see this car it was bright yellow um and it's just you know, you feel like you're bringing Christmas to town when you roll around in this thing because it's just so funny. And it's a supercar that has a sense of humor, yeah. which I like. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yeah. uh, that's brief uh, description of the Huracan Serato. Right. So, anyway, the uh, topic at hand. The topic at hand. So that was just a quick the Japanese market. Quick side trip into side trip into uh, what we were uh, what we've been driving recently. But um, so the topic at hand is obviously a Japanese domestic market or JDM cars. Um, when we say the Japanese domestic market, we mean cars that weren't necessarily sold here in a form that we could buy. Uh, or cars that were just never sold here at all, period, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, a right-hand drive Civic doesn't necessarily count, but a Civic with some rare VTEC option or, like, you know, the Civic Del Sol trans top with the, yeah. like, thing, the robot that would, like, hand you the hard top and then, like, take it away from you. That's something that's quirky and unique to Japan. But Japanese cars are, are fascinating just because they they answer all these unique and unusual market requests that we don't think of because we have so much space or we have, you know, a a less demanding driver or perhaps just less, you know, less unusual urban driving needs. And and the Japanese culture when it comes to cars and engineering is pretty unique. And they've influenced the rest of the world, frankly, through things like the Toyota production system, which has now been adopted by pretty much every major mm-hmm. automaker. Um, so it's cool to think about the Japanese dom- domestic market as kind of a test bed and also a breeding ground for innovation and ideas, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. really since following the Second World War. Right. Um, so with that, so we'll jump into we'll, we'll jump a in. brief history. So there's a brief history. You know, the big players are obviously Honda, Toyota, uh, Nissan, right? Mazda, Suzuki, Subaru. Those are kind of the biggest, and you know they all have sub brands. They all have like you know that's not including Daihatsu, which is part of Toyota, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, you know, Honda. I won't get too into the weeds on this because there's probably more we could talk about. But my perf, my personal favorite Japanese brand of all of them is is Honda. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always loved their engineering. They've always been, um, they've always managed to make the mundane fun to drive, and I think that's been pretty hard to duplicate with some of these other brands. Yeah. Um, and they've focused not only on performance, but also mm-hmm. on, on driver inputs, their shifters, their steering, their engines. Like you think about even like a 90s Accord, like a CB7 Accord or something like that, or an EF or an EG hatchback. And they're, um, they have double wishbone in all four corners on an economy car. They didn't have to do that. They didn't have to do that. There's no reason. They could have just done a beam axle, which they later did. But like, or twi- you know, a twist beam, whatever it's called, torsion bar, um, torsion beam. Uh, so there's no reason for that. But anyway, Honda founded uh, was founded in the mid-30s. As with many of these kind of car companies uh, from Japan, a lot of them kind of rose to prominence, with the exception of Nissan, really, in the 30s, pre-war. Um, they were kind of a machining company. They made they actually, ironically, they started out making piston rings with Toyota, uh, or for really? Toyota products. They weren't yeah. very good at it, so <laughs> they, they lost the contract. Uh, so, so Shiro Honda, that's, maybe not his finest hour. That's one way to be forced to branch yeah, out. Yeah, I just find that kind of funny. Um, but, you know, after the war, you know, the easiest thing for them to reindustrialize was bikes, uh, bicycles, excuse me, not bikes, uh, mopeds, scooters, and motorcycles. You know, obviously the, the Cub and the Super Cub kind of changed transportation in, in the U.S. and in emerging markets, right? Mm-hmm. A 50cc moped. Um, and then their first car came in the early 60s in 1963, where their first dealer was in Torrance, I believe, in, in American Honda. Yeah. Or, um, it, it was a version of it, I think, the storefront is preserved at Honda's museum in Torrance. Um, not the actual store. The original store, I think the building was demolished. But anyway, it's the T360 mini pickup truck. So it was a 360cc uh I, I think Which truck, at the time, truck is a generous word. At the but, time, I believe 360 cc's was the requirement for a K car or for a city car something like that, in Japan. Yeah. And so that's yeah. why you had those, uh, those types but, of But, you know, vehicles. Honda's branched out into a lot of other things, you know, generators, watercraft, aircraft in the yeah. mid-2000s. And they launched their first jet in 2015. It's been actually pretty successful. Mm-hmm. Um, with unusual, again, typical Honda engineering, right? It's got the, 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 the engines mounted on pylons above the wings, which is a very unusual design. But anyway, uh, their big inventions really were obviously VTEC, yo, uh, CVCC in the 70s. So CVCC, which passed American emissions requirements without a catalytic converter, right. famously. Right. I think it's compound vortex, something. Combustion com- chamber. chamber or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Um, I believe so. Somewhere Kamisa's screaming. 
Um, so, and then obviously they had the first mass-produced hybrid in the U.S., which was the Insight. Shaped, yeah, shaped like a like a suppository, frankly, but uh, but it was but, it, but effective. But it got sixty-nine miles per gallon. Nice. Yes. And, uh, and Honda so. is really interesting because of just the sheer volume of stuff they make. I mean, I was at the Tokyo Auto Show, now known as the Japan Mobility Show, in October last year. And yeah. you go to the Honda booth and there's like a jet next to a, a electric wheelchair, next to like a, robot. a generator, <laughs> next to a robot, next to a K-truck. Yeah, how could next we forget to... Osimo? How could we forget Osimo? Yeah, I mean, so, so Honda is really just been synonymous with innovation and pushing the boundaries technically over the years and that's why we like them right uh and just high revving crazy like i don't know just something very iconic about vtech and vtech engines uh just kicked in yo uh so toyota speaking which uh you know the again uh, they were incorporated as Toyota in 1937, but they actually started out as a company that made looms. So a loom is basically something that I think like brings like ro- reels of fabric together for 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 like textile manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the t- proper term is bolt. I don't know loom. Um, but anyway, uh, and so they kind of got industrialized as a company in the late 20s, but didn't come to be known as Toyota, the car company, until the late 30s. Um, they first built cars. Their first production vehicle was 36. And obviously... It's called the Model AA. I really wonder where they got that name from. Couldn't imagine. It happened to be the Model A Ford was at it at the same time. Uh, but at any rate, you know, um, they invented kind of what we consider, you know, if, if Henry Ford invented the, the production line, the assembly line, Toyota invented how to make money with it. Yeah. Right? Which was the Toyota production system of what they call Kaizen, which is the, the notion of continuous improvement. Right, but which is a whole other story for another day. But you know, their big thing contributions were hybrid synergy drive, right? So I would argue they made the first commercially successful hybrid. Yeah. So the Insight was the first hybrid sold in the U.S., but the Prius was one that was actually successful. Um, and yeah, then, yeah. And they they really changed mm-hmm. sort. They made hi- they took hybrids from like a fringe concept into the mainstream, at least in the U.S. And they were also the very first Japanese brand to legitimately challenge luxury segment with lexus absolutely right, in the late 80s so toyota really and even today they're kind of going through a renaissance themselves as a brand uh and there's they're, they're really quite a force and i think if if honda is sort of synonymous with innovation toyota is almost synonymous with like engineering perfection like they just want to chase refinement and reliability and kind of perfect things to the point that they're foolproof right designs yes. i'd argue that you know toyota's stuff i mean as we all know forerunner is 15 years old uh, or more just not always on the cutting edge no and they don't you know but there's something to be said for you know uh, evolution by beach erosion right so so anyway and then uh uh nissan right so Nissan is the oldest of all the Japanese automakers. You know, I think this comes off the heels of reading two very interesting books, uh, which was Boundless about the Carlos Ghosn scandal. Highly recommend reading about that. Uh, And then uh, obviously the cult of GTR, which was uh, Ryan Zemallen, who used to work for Edmunds and a few other places. Both Uh, excellent books. Great books. Gives you a real insight into Nissan in terms of their philosophy as a company and how they've come to where they are. and they kind of they're you know they started producing cars in the teens like in the 19 teens just before world war one uh but their real success came in like the 20s and 30s with the with the austin 7 licensed version some argue it is an austin 7 licensed uh example some do not some say it's clean sheet it looks a lot like an austin 7 yeah uh well all their cars really from the 20s and i i did have the privilege while i was in japan of going to their zama heritage center where they have a lot of their historically significant cars and if you look at their cars from the teens 20s and 30s pretty much everything looks like a two-third scale cut down of either a british car or like an american sort of mob era car and that makes sense because yeah that's what was that's what else was out at the time that makes sense yeah so their big break was with something called the type 11 which was a licensed version of the austin 7 
obviously, you know, uh, they, they, the Skyline came to be in the 60s when they bought Prince, uh, which was another car company of Japan, when there kind of was the great sort of absorption of all the brands and the kind of conglomeration mm -hmm. effect during the 60s. Uh, and then, you know, obviously in the, in the 90s, I mean, they came to be known, obviously, for the, the GTR, uh, the Z car in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and even today. Um, and, and really, uh, the arrival of Carlos Ghosn, who kind of breathed new life into Nissan, at least for a short period. Yeah. Um, with, I mean, they, you know, they really have a very illustrious history of, of kind of innovation throughout the 60s, 70s. Yeah. I mean, the L-Series engines, the original Z just kind of turned mm -hmm. sports cars on its head. If you... You know, look yeah, in the original. Museum. I mean, the original Skyline in '69, yeah, winning, winning, winning international racing. I mean, yeah. their motorsports history was super decorated, but right. by the time we arrived at the late '90s, as right. as we read in the in the Gone book, mm -hmm. I mean, they were so broke that they turned off the elevators and the air conditioning in their world headquarters in Yokohama because well, on certain floors. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, but just as a concept, <laughs> yeah. like your company is so broke that you right. literally cannot keep the lights right. on. Yeah. I think, you know, their big innovations, obviously the GTR is a game changer, world changer, the Z car. Uh, they had the first, you know, I think I would argue Nissan has had the, 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 the distinction of having, I believe, the first really commercially successful mass produced EV, the Leaf. Yeah, you know. I mean, I'm assuming we're not counting EV1 as mass-produced. I mean, no, it was a pilot program. I'm that talking was... about a car that wasn't a science experiment. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, the the Leaf, yeah, Nissan really had this big head start when it came to EVs, and that they've and they kind of ran out that, of money, <laughs> let that erode, and now yeah. Chatmo is going away. Yeah, but yeah. The Leaf, the Leaf. It's hard to think and remember back now, but that was pretty much a pioneer when it came. Right, and then out. of course you know the famous Atessa ETS all-wheel drive system, which mm -hmm. I think was one of the first torque vectoring systems around on the on the GTR, and it's still in use today. A version of it is still in use today. That mm -hmm. technology. So, anyway, that's Nissan. They were the probably the worst hurt in the uh, COVID pandemic crisis too. So unfortunately, and by Mr. Gone departing uh, unexpectedly, shall we say? Uh, but at any rate, uh, Mazda, which is I think. I think today is still the smallest of all the Japanese manufacturers. They've all they've always been one of the smaller ones. Right. And they've always done things a little bit differently from their origins in 1920 as a cork making factory. That's uh that's a little bit different. Well, you can find that in the uh oh so successful MX30 where the interior pieces were there was cork trim as an ode to Mazda's heritage as a cork company. Yeah, well, yeah, because so many people know that. Next fact. time I see one of the 50 MX-30s on the road, I will uh, yeah. have to check it out. Yeah, um, Mazda's first car came in 1931 with the Mazda Go automated rickshaw. In the 60s, they refined uh, Felix Wankel's concept of the rotary engine. It was the first internal combustion engine to be pistonless, and Ma they mass-produced, really... mass-produced them and them and NSU. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean NSU, yeah. but Mazda was really the only one to ever successfully commercialize the rotary engine. Push for it, anyway. I don't know how successful they were, but they sold a bunch of them, and uh, I would argue that you know I think I think they made a profit. RX sevens, RX threes, can't forget the Repu truck, the, the Repu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and they still have a dedicated fan base to this day, right? Um, even right. even without uh, a rotary product on sale, they're still apparently now working on a rotary hybrid sports car. Believe it when I see it. Yeah, um, but but that's exciting. I mean, they have always done things a little bit differently. They, as we said, popularized the rotary engines. They had the first win by a rotary-powered race car at Le Mans with yeah. the 787B in 91. Um, yeah. And they also, I would argue, reinvented the Roadster in they, the they early 90s well, with they the redefined, Miata. They redefined the sports car, right? The Miata is the quintessential, the essence of a sports car. You know, there are two cars, I think, that really capture that. One is Lotus with the Elise. The other is Miata, right? Uh, for different reasons, they do things differently. I mean, you know, um, but both still presume pursue the same function of every gram counts, mm -hmm. right? So uh, similar but different. 
And uh, and the yeah. idea with the Miata was that mm-hmm. you wanted to make a sports car that people could actually enjoy because it didn't spend half of its life broken. Mm-hmm. And so I think they changed the expectation. They changed people's expectations that, hey, a sports car should be something that I can enjoy you know every day or on nice days Mm -hmm. and you don't have to make excuses for it right that was not true of all of their products rotary engines require many excuses a lot of crying and thousands of Mm -hmm. dollars but the miata really is a no excuse car correct and i give mazda some credit you know they're losing a little bit of that identity as they try to push towards a near premium or more premium experience with things like cx90 uh and stuff like that but um you know, they they still make a compelling product. They've always been able to do a lot with a little. I always have given them credit about doing the most with the least. They uh, have a much you know? smaller budget than Toyota yeah. or Honda. Right. And they still, I mean, I watched their presentation in Tokyo. And as they're presenting um, their rotary hybrid sports car concept, um, all of their people from their CEO and president down to you know the engineers on the project are standing up on the stage and they're all sort of talking about their backgrounds and they all are you know competing in racing Mm -hmm. and uh doing um autocross Mm -hmm. and they all really talk about how passionate they are about driving and how they're passionate about the joy of driving and that has always been something that has set them apart yep uh suzuki i won't spend too long they stopped selling cars here a few years ago um i think just before the pandemic i think what was it 17 or 18 was like their last year selling cars yeah i think the kazashi was the last one maybe the sedan maybe it was 15 or 16 i don't remember find me a suzuki kazashi with a manual transmission there are like five of them i'm told i'm told they're pretty good to drive um i've never driven i don't know uh but but yeah you know they're still they're still here as far as selling bikes they still sell motorcycles Mm mm-hmm um if some you know the jixers obviously famous gsxr is a 1000 is a famous uh kind of sport bike um and everyone wishes they would sell the jimny here but but aside from that you know again another company that started making cars uh in the 50s um kind of later than the others with a lot less budget suzuki uh is still in many markets uh you know emerging markets in europe and in and in asia a you know maker of small you know kind of reliable cars the swift is very well loved um they make some crossovers in other markets uh vitara i think is now like a unibody crossover Mm -hmm. in other markets and uh yeah you know on kind of unremarkable product stuff like you know i mean they yeah they have one of my favorite suzuki's one of our favorite suzuki's of all times the cappuccino Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but they i mean they've they have made some interesting things over the years unfortunately they're probably just a little bit too small to really succeed in the U.S. right yeah, now. Yeah. But, I mean, the Jimny is a really unique and interesting product. Right. Um, the Suzuki Swift, famously the best first car to drive on the Nurburgring. Yep. Um, I mean, they've made some interesting stuff over the years. Yeah. Lastly, I will touch on well, Subaru. There's two. I mean, we also forgot Mitsubishi here a little bit, but... Uh, Isn't that really just an apt analogy for Mitsubishi's brand lately? I mean, Mitsubishi, you know, I, I won't talk about them too much because, you know, uh, they made the Zero, who was kind of their biggest claim to fame in World War II, uh, the Kamikaze plane. Uh, but but primarily, you know, obviously known for the Evo, known for the 3000 GT, a.k.a. the GTO. The FTP was another, not FTP, what was it? Uh, FTO, sorry, FTP is like a file server. Uh, the FTO, uh, uh, two-door coupe, you know, the... the Let's not forget the Eclipse. The Montero, the Eclipse, the the Diamante, and the very attractive Diamante wagon. We which... also can't forget the Chariot Resort Runner GT. What the hell is that? So my colleague, oh, James Gilboy, owns... Oh. It is essentially a Mitsubishi Expo with an Evo 4 drivetrain in it. Yes. So it has like the Evo engine. I'm forgetting the engine code. 4G60. 4G60, yes. Um, And a manual transmission and the all-wheel drive system out of an Evo, but it has the body and chassis of a Mitsubishi Expo. And I'm sorry, what is the name of this? This is the Chariot Resort Runner GT. The hell is a Resort Runner? It is a a fantastic name. I think, 
I mean, I think the name is meant to sort of evoke like you're driving this like up and down a ski mountain. Oh, like a ski that's resort. Almost, that's almost as bad as the Nissan Homie van I saw on the Hutch the other day. There have been some interesting names. Homie H H O M Y Homie van limousine exceed. Yeah, <laughs> okay. the Japanese take some liberties with the English language, yeah. which is fair because if I had to figure out their language, I would be utterly confused. Yes, as would I. Um, but yeah, anyway, Mitsubishi is interesting. Subaru. Fuji Heavy Industries actually started out as the aircraft research laboratory for the Japanese government in 1915. Yep. Um, in 32, the company was reorganized as Nakajima Aircraft Company and also became a major manufacturer of aircraft for Japan during the Second World War. But um, after the war, you know, like a lot of these companies, they were just trying to make some money and give wheels to a pretty down in the dumps and pretty uh pretty beaten down japanese populace so they built the uh the fuji rabbit motor scooter out of spare aircraft parts that they had left over from the war effort we like to call those spare craft anyway. so yes uh sure whatever I, um, okay. that's a five out of ten joke right please there. in the 50s though ceo kenji kido wanted the company to get into cars which they did with the subaru 360 city car which was the first subaru to come to the united states i think it was yeah, yeah in 58 um it was also named for its displacement 360 cc like the honda like the honda and it was hugely successful it was known as essentially like ugly but functional and even like on subaru's history website they refer to it as like ugly but good we saw one at grid life that had been kind of split apart and built over a tube frame chassis and kind of welded to an sti drivetrain yeah, yeah. It, it looks kind of like if you took an isetta and like pulled on both ends for a while you just kind of elongated it, it it's not natural it's it's a bizarre looking car but it was successful yeah. and it was pretty cheap you know ugly but cheap as right. they say. Right. Um, interestingly, I didn't know this before doing research for this episode, but Nissan acquired a 20% stake in uh, Fuji Heavy Industries in, 20, in uh, 1968, basically because they had diesel expertise and Nissan wanted to build buses. Hmm. Um, Subaru invented symmetrical all-wheel drive in 1972, um, right as they were sort of coming out with some of their wagons it's and so, the Brat. It's so funny because their all-wheel drive system, you look on like 80s Subarus, it's like selectable. You like turn it on and off with the switch on the yeah. shifter. It's yeah, you had all these, all these different kind of pieces of switch gear. It yeah. was all like very manual and selectable. Um, when the Renault-Nissan alliance began in 1999, Nissan was strapped for cash. So they dumped their stake in uh, Fuji Heavy Industries to GM. Huh. Uh, GM picked up the 20% stake in Subaru, which led to, and, and also a seat on the board, which led to the Baja, development of the B9 Tribeca for the U.S. market, mm -hmm. as well as the Saab 92X, which was a rebodied WRX. The Sabaru. The Sabaru, which we all yeah. know. The Subaru Forester was also sold as a Chevrolet Forester in India, which I did not know. I can't think of anything worse um, <laughs> to, to, in terms of putting a Chevy badge on a Forester. Yeah, anyway. it's, uh, it's weird. Um, but GM sold their holdings in 2005, and between 05 and 08, Toyota bought about 16.5% of Fuji Heavy Industries, which is what led to the modern I mean, BRZ FRS yeah. 86 project. Yeah, I'd argue it's given us some good pro some good outputs of that. We did get the Mazda 2 as a Scion briefly, and then a Toyota um as the Scion IA something, Corolla IA or something like that, mm -hmm. Yaris IA. Yaris IA, that's what it was called, yeah. And, you know, Subaru's got, you know, obviously famous in rally, a lot of World Rally Championship things. I did forget to mention, speaking of rally, Suzuki was very uh, successful at Pikes Peak for many years. In mm -hmm. 07 to 11, they won every year. And um, Toyota competed in uh, WRC with the GT4 Celica. And they won Pikes Peak with Rod Millen. Yeah. In, uh, in, in, in the 90s with the, with the uh, Tacoma. True. So, I mean, anyway. iconic... Colin McRae rally, you know, Colin McRae, 1995 WRC driver's title, Richard Burns in 01, Peter Solberg in 03, um, yeah. and Subaru took the manufacturer's title three years in a row from 95 to 97, right. 
year of my birth. Um, but youth, yeah, youth. Subaru's uh, World Route WRC cars are prepared and run by ProDrive, the highly successful British motorsport team that is now mm-hmm. building and selling um, the 22B. Mm-hmm. Ken Block got edition. his start driving a Subaru. Yes. So did Travis Pastrana. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and finally, for a fun fact, I bet you didn't know this one, the Subaru Justy holds the world record for the fastest sub one liter car without a turbo, 123 point two two four mile per average mile per hour average in 1989 my car had a cvt yum so uh subaru's noteworthy inventions first mass-produced k car the subaru 360 in 1958 symmetrical all-wheel drive in 72 and i would argue maybe not the first crossover but really early to the crossover and lifted wagon game with the Forester and the 1995 Outback. I mean, they were ahead of the game and there. And who was, quiz time, who was the spokesperson for the Outback when it first came out? I have no clue. Who was it? Paul Hogan, the Crocodile Dundee. Okay. So it was that, really weird. That fits. Really weird. So anyway, so like as we think about, you know, that's just a quick overview. We know we've been chatting for a few minutes now, but... You know, one of the things also I wanted to touch on was kind of like the best of Japanese, right? The best of Japanese from the last, say, 40, 50 years um, of, of product, right? Because really starting in the 60s, they really started to get into their stride. Yeah. It took them some, I mean, after the war, you're rebuilding a country. You're just trying to get people affordable transportation. But by right. the 60s, they had a little more room to play. They had money. So, you know, when you think about starting in the 60s, right, I think about like the Mazda Cosmo, Leno has one, you know, the 110S is a beautiful little car. Gorgeous car. Beautiful little car. Tiny. I've seen one in person. Tiny little car. I've seen one too at the, at the Peterson and it tiny really is car. small. Uh, 2000 GT, again, tiny little car, stunning. Out E-type, the E-type. And I would argue one of the most valuable Japanese cars ever made. I think one either sold for a million or just under a million. So it's pretty good, I think. That sounds know. about right. Yeah. I've seen um, one of very few 2000 GT Roadsters at um, the Loebman Museum in The Hague. There were two. Oh, yeah. There okay. were two ever made. There one, were only two. Toyota wow. has one, and I forget who has yeah. the other. Well, the other one's at the Loebman Museum in yeah. The Hague. So right. I've seen yeah. one of the two Roadsters. I think the coupe is probably even more beautiful. Yes. But it is just... Do you know why they made the Roadster? Uh, was it for the Bond movie? Yes, but specifically why they made the Roadster. Uh, because, I don't know why, tell me. Sean Connery was too tall to fit in the coupe. That was so that they, was what I was going to so, guess, so but I wasn't to, positive. They had to chop the roof off it, so they had one for stunts and one for like beauty shots. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did. They had to cut the roof off because there was no other way to get them to fit. But it's the, amazing. Car, the car was gorgeous. It's amazing so. that they did the movie with just two cars because yeah. I've seen all of the DB... They had like 12 DB5s for the most recent Bond movie. There's another Easter egg on that car where I love is Yamaha did the motor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for, it was a two-liter inline-six, which is incredible, 150 horsepower. But the best part of the whole thing was that because Yamaha did the motor and Toyota had a relationship with Yamaha, Yamaha also, the wood that they would use on their turntables, their record players, and their pianos mm-hmm. was used for the dash and the wheel on the 2000 GT. That's fantastic. Which is amazing, yeah. So anyway, the, you know, the original Hakosuka GTR, or the Hakosuka if you're a gringo, uh, and the Ken Mary, right? Both are cool cars. The Ken I, Mary, if you're really a gringo. If you're really they're a super gringo. rare. Yeah, I've had a chance to sit in a Hakoska GTR during the industry days uh, at the New York Auto Show years ago. They're tiny. They're real weird. They're not super tiny. They're about the size of a, like, a little bit longer than a 2002. Mm-hmm. But their the driving position is very peculiar. It's very upright and an overstuffed seat. And it's like the stump, the wheel is in your chest. And it's a very strange driving position to me. Um, uh, you know, uh, with the stock seats. This was a museum example. And that was, yeah, I have actually seen the first Hakoska GTR ever made. That was a first car to wear the GTR badge. But that was a four-door? It was a red, it was a red one. I don't, I don't remember whether it was a four or two-door. It's a, it was a red car. It's in the Zama collection. It was sure. the first car to wear the, uh, to, the first Nissan to wear the GTR I think that's the, the 2000 badge. GTR. That's okay. The, that's the sedan. Um, anyway, so the, 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 
the other ones I think of like lesser known is like something like the Bluebird Triple S, which is like a hot Datsun uh, from from Japan. Um, kind of had like a hot twin cam in it. And then cars like, you know, like the 70 Celicas that we got here, the RA21s, those kind of like cool looking like Mustang like two door Celicas. Yeah. Those are great looking cars. A lot of American muscle influences on yeah. 70s Japanese yeah. cars. In the 80s, you obviously had the 86, you know, the original 86. Uh, Corolla, the Trueno Corolla with the twin cam 4AGE motor. Um, and then, you know, the all-wheel drive Celicas. We got them as the Celica all-track, but they also had rally homologation Celicas. So, you know, in the 90s, it was the ST202, but I think there was a 201. Can't uh, forget the uh, the Toyota um, all-track wagon either. Oh, the Camry all-track? The Camry all-track, and then there was also that smaller, like, the, the Tercel or whatever. Oh, that. the Tercel. Yeah, but that was a that was a four-wheel drive system. Yeah. All-track was automatic. Well, they called it an all-track. Oh, maybe they was... did. Okay, because one of them was manually selectable. So yeah. All, I, think, I think the whole thing with all-track was that it was automatic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and the Previa also had all-track. So, yeah, um, this is true. And then the 90s was really, like... You know, we talk about the bubble economy in Japan, right? The 80s and the 90s, Japan, the yen was strong. Japanese economy was booming. You know, you had big investment firms in the U.S. making a lot of money. And Japan was the yeah. home of technology. Right. I mean, they were developing computers. They were developing communications technology. They just, at J that point, Japan was the future. Japan thought that anything could be solved through technological innovation. Right, and they were right. Uh, for they were about right to twenty years. For a right, yeah, yeah. For a while, they were right. Um, you know, all, obviously, any of the thirty-two to thirty-four GTRs, hot cars, incredible cars, broadly the same car underneath, but with updates, electronics, bigger motor, you know, more advanced all-wheel drive system, right? A little bit more creature comfort, maybe a little wider. Um, but then, ba same basic chassis. I, I think by the end, by the thirty-four, you had stuff like traction control, stability control, but not a. Certainly not yeah, in 32. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you got into like the, the digital displays for performance and all that stuff. You know, RX-7, FC, and FD, those are great cars. They were sold here, um, but sort of the rarer ones over there, like the Spirit R and all kinds of the fun, interesting stuff. Yep. Uh, Supra goes without saying, um, but you know, the, the 3000 GT is okay. It's kind of a big ponderous thing. It's about two tons. I mean, the Supra is heavy too, but not like the 3000 GT. Those um, two are more of... More of GT cars. And it's not like the 32, the GTRs were super light because they were still mm -hmm. all-wheel drive and had four seats, but they mm -hmm. were a little bit more... Yeah, but I'd argue like Evo 1 through 5, those are cool. Very. You know, um, Subaru 22Bs are pretty cool. They're you know, they're 200 grand for a reason or plus, you know. Plus. You know, um, so they're pretty impressive. Some of the K cars are kind but, of neat. Yeah, so at, this, at the same time that you have the high end of the market going crazy... You also have a change in a rise in taxes and a change in regulation. So now K cars can be 660 cc's mm -hmm. instead of, I believe it was 500 before that. Right. And so that really gives rise to a new class of K cars that we know today right. in the U.S. So right. you, you have your vans, you have your trucks, you know, Acties, Homies. Um, no, a Homie is a big van. Uh, sorry, not a home. Uh, like you, you have stuff like uh, Delicas that are coming out during they're that not time. K, they're not K cars, but they're smaller vans. Um, but you also yeah. had like the POW and the Figaro when Nissan was trying to do its retro thing. Right. Um, case the obviously the big three K. Well, sports you know what? Though, the Figaro was not a K car because it had a one liter. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Okay. So. But it's, an, it's kind of part of the same It's the It's the genre. retro ethos. That retro, Nissan was really trying to make that retro thing happen in the right. 90s. And they yeah. were probably just a little bit too and They sick. were the pipe, you know, the pipe cars and all that yeah. stuff. So. But the, the yeah. 3K sports cars, you had the AutoZam AZ1, Honda Beat, and Suzuki Cappuccino. I've, dr I've driven a Beat. That's weird. It, it's interesting. I drove a Beat that was Beat, um, believe it or not. It was pretty rough. Um not terrible, but like it had a pretty nasty clunk from the diff. But mm -hmm. but what an incredible piece of machinery! Very solidly built, mm -hmm. um, weighs nothing, but it's wonderful shifter. Best Honda shifter, one of the best ones I've ever had. Like Honda shifters in general, good. This was great. Um, the Beats like a Ferrari at two thirds scale. Kind of. It really sounds like an an early NSX, like a Gen One NSX. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
and the engine's right behind. Yeah. I've ridden in one. I haven't yeah. driven one. But... NA1 NSX. Excuse me, NA1 or NA2 NSX. Sounds like that, but with three cylinders. I mean, it just really sounds like an NSX to me. Um, really tiny. You feel like you're uh, uh, going to become a statistic very quickly. Um, but at any rate, so that's the best of the best of Japan in our in our move. You know, by the 2000s, the economy had kind of gone bust in Japan, and Nissan was broke and it was kind of on the the healing path under Gone. Um, if, but if the 90s were the night out, the 2000s, the early 2000s were kind of the hangover. I would agree with that sentiment. Fun. That's a pretty good deal. And and there still were desirable cars, but like we got the S2000, the 350Z. That's yeah. You know, it was kind yeah. of the end of the Japan only crazy cars. Right. And then, you know, where there's a best of JDM, there's a worst of JDM, right? I would so, agree. So uh, I won't go on too much about this being trying to be cognizant of time, but, you know, the, the Midget 2 is an example. People will scream at me because that's so weird, you know, but, you know, I know it's so weird, but uh, it's a one seat pickup truck that has bedsides that are extremely low that I don't understand this vehicle. Yeah, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. The photo I found or that we found is of it sitting on a dock, and I guess that's what you would use it for. But like, it's weird. It's yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, my colleague James has driven one, and he said it's hilarious, but also terrifying. Um, yes, it is. If you need to access somewhere super narrow, maybe it has a use. The one seat thing is what gets the one me. seat thing is weird. I don't understand. But it. most of the time, you know, us Americans, we drive around in our Escalades with one person in them. Not I, we, but yeah, I saw one of these. So GooNet is it? Not nothing racist. There's a website for Japanese cars if you want to import them or buy them. Mm -hmm. There's many. There's the import guys. There's a few others. But GooNet is great for like browsing. Okay. And like I happen to come across this thing. It's a Nissan Rasheen. What a terribly ugly car. <laughs> I mean, it's a depressing thing. It's like the boring. The headlights don't really feel like they work with the rest of the car. It's got like a 60s grill and headlights, I, but an 80s body. <laughs> I will like, say I've seen a, I think, slightly later version of this car that had like an, some off-road graphics on it and looked more like a smaller subaru forester and this, that looks this ain't better it, though. but yeah this ain't it but it's it's an it's, acquired taste these were killed when gone took uh you know came in because it was kind of a strange model that served no purpose it's basically a lifted centro with a full-time all-wheel drive system and an sr20 in it so kind of a nice little two liter twin cam engine um it's basically a centro that's weird like yeah worse it's pretty weird. better i don't know anyway uh, then, you know, Mitsuoka. Mitsuoka is a company that um, is not related to Mitsubishi in any way. Um, it's a, think of them as a Japanese coach builder. They take very sensible cars and make them look like weird old British cars. They're kind of or like, any kind of weird car. They're the, think of them as the Zimmer of Japan. Yeah, so like one of them is called the Viewt, V-I-E-W-T, like Newt, but with a V. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's basically it, modeled. It ain't a beaut. I'll tell no, you. No, it's not. It's based on a micro, which is like a sub, like smaller than even the Versa. Uh, and it's it's like, but they've restyled it to look like a Jaguar Mark II. Yeah. Which is strange. It looks like it has the Jaguar grill, that sort of teardrop grill, and it has two upright circular headlights. It is essentially a Jaguar a jaguar mark ii slash like jaguar s type at like six tenths scale again i don't know who that's it's for very i don't understand who's buying that car but japan does have a weird fetish for like some british stuff i mean even like well, you yeah. know the 2000 gt was an e-type i know but then you had the mitz as jeremy clarkson said mitsuoka lesaid <laughs> lesaid this really looks like a cut down zimmer it's, <laughs> it's a very strange car it's an s i think it's an s13 sylvia that's got two feet added to the wheelbase and an sr20 in it and an automatic yep. <laughs> so it's it's bad you can go see the grand tour it was on the grand tour when they think they went to eastern europe um and they're and they're still at it with the mitsuoka himiko which is an nd miata with again two feet added to the wheelbase yep and the styling of like a Morgan. I'm sure that did wonders for the handling characteristics. Oh, yes, yes. It's got the headlights from an R53 Mini. And oh, my car. Yeah, so basically, I don't know how Morgan didn't sue them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> It does look like an Aero 8. Right, and then and like... 
It's just wild to me that they've survived. Yeah, and then the last honorable mention is this Subaru Impreza Casablanca. So it's no a, idea why it's called that. It's a GC8 Impreza that, which is like a '90s Impreza, like a mid '90s to late '90s Impreza. It looks like it has a Lancia grill. Yeah, it's got like the front end off of like it's some weird mix of like Italian and British. And the back has like giant round taillights where there obviously shouldn't be giant round taillights. Right. But it's just, it's dog shit. It's so lazy. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I guess, I don't know. Are they going to give us an explanation, like an ex, like an, uh, uh, not clean rating now for that? I don't know. Anyway. Um, well, they can't see it. So I don't think it should be. No, I know. I meant the, the verbiage. But anyway. Don't worry. Yeah. This so is, it, we're anyway. far enough in. So long story short, you know. I guess, you know, as we look at some of these best, worst, and just JDM as a whole, right, uh, there's been something of a renaissance in the last five to t- five years or so, ten yeah. years, um, among the Japanese brands. Perhaps yeah. most surprising, Toyota is making enthusiast products again. I would, yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, it, it really, there was kind of, between, like, stuff like the Matrix XRS in the early 2000s, there was really, like, 10 years where Toyota didn't make anything remotely interesting. I mean, the, I'm the, talking the days of the Camry Solara. The 2000, I would argue that, like, from 2002 to, like, 2011, there was nothing remotely exciting at Toyota to me. No. And I, unless you were, like, a truck guy. Right. I mean, they had the Tacoma and the Forerunner. And the but, FJ Cruiser and the... Right. And the, the, the FJ was cool. Yeah. But... They didn't make anything that was like from an enthusiast driving perspective, like until the eighty six, the new eighty six came out in twenty thirteen. Twelve actually. Yeah, twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. That yeah, twenty thirteen model, that really jump started a renaissance there. And now yeah. they're building a Supra again, quote well, unquote. Well BMW is BMW is building a Supra that's licensed Yes. Um, Actually, Magna is building it, but anyway. And we'll see how long that's around, because they only sold 5,000 of them last year. But Who knows? But God bless. It's good to see. The GR Corolla is basically a WRC car for the street. Yes. um, And the GR Yaris, which we don't get. Uh, GR86 and BRZ second gen, despite um, the oiling issues... Really is a usable everyday sports car. It looks that's, great too. It looks good. It's focused on driver engagement over stats, and it really is like a it's testament a fo- to Akio Toyota's commitment to driving fun and driving pleasure. And I would argue in today's market, it is actually affordable. It's a value. Yeah, absolutely. It's a value. You know, uh, especially as the Miata the coming for twenty four model year crests thirty grand base price for the first time. And it's a it's a more practical car than a Miata. Yes. You can put kid seats in the back. You can put actual things in the trunk, yes. and you have a roof. Yes, that does that can't be stabbed. So you know, like torn with a, with something. Totally. Uh, Honda and Acura, right? They very quietly, very quietly, kind of come back. I mean, it's funny. Honda has kind of been interesting in that you know they put a stick back in the Accord briefly with the two liter with a detuned Type R engine. They gave, brought the Type R back. They you know, uh, they have done some other interesting things. Um, Acura, I would argue, has been much more benefit, like has benefited much more from this. The Type S resurgence, right? Integra Type S, even though it's a little bit more money than the Type R, I think it's a better car personally. It's more, uh, uh, it's more daily drivable. It's more usable. I think it looks better personally. But uh, it, it, you know, TLX. I mean, your uh, your friends at the drive had a very nice experience to say about yeah, the TLX. Yeah, Ni- Nico. Type S. Nico really liked the TLX Type TLX S. TLX Type S, great car. MDX is MDX solid. Type S. People seem to find it normal enough. I mean, it's certainly not an X5M, but it's you know, it does. It's also. I mean, but it's more playing in that yeah. like SQ5 space. It's than kind like of an pricey. X5M. I think yeah. it's kind of pricey for what it is, but it's pretty good. Um, Honda is also kind of at the same time while they're pumping out hits like the new Type R. The, the Accord has kind of gotten weird and bland again. And it did, yeah. You know, it's like very strange. They it's, went from a super, super sharp uh, 10th gen Accord to the 11th gen that's now like a little bit of a blob. But, yeah. um, I mean, the new Pilot, by all accounts, is really solid. The Passport is good. I mean, Ooh. they're making good products. They're making enthusiast products. They seem to have come out of the morass a bit. So. Mazda still makes the Miata. ND2 is the best one yet subjective yes i mean yes. great engine yeah somehow weighs only like 
a hundred pounds more than the NA Miata did thirty years mm-hmm. ago, which is mm-hmm. a freaking miracle yes. given like side crash and yep, everything yep. as you know. Yep. And they're investing supposedly in making a rotary hybrid sports car. Yeah, that's um, one of the great rumors of the automotive industry. The mid-engine Corvette, the rotary. Well, they've confirmed it. I mean, yeah. now Mazda has said this is something we're developing. Does it that works. mean it'll see production? No. Well, not necessarily. No, but. but hey, a mid-engine Corvette happens. So we need this to complete the three horsemen of the apocalypse. So, and, and then finally, where is Nissan in all this? I mean, the GTR is 17 years old. The new Z looks great. I spent a week with it. It's uh, it's a fun car to drive, and it's a powerful engine. Um, but the bones are twenty years old. So I mean, I think that hyperforce thing that's for some reason says ass B force on the side. Um, that concept from Tokyo. I mean, all the concepts that they showed off at Tokyo are basically pipe dreams. Like I know, but I think that's what flesh. they're that's supposed to be hinting at the future design of GTR. I think sure. obviously because of the four taillights. But yeah. But I don't know what that it means, you know. I mean, will that it be was a BEV? Will it be, well, I don't know. There's been talk it'll be a BEV, you know, an electric vehicle. Nissan so needs money first. Yeah. So, you know, that's our first part of a two-part series on JDM, yo, and where the future of JDM goes. But, you know, this is, this is kind of just a sampler of JDM. What we want to talk about next, which we will next week, is what's next for JDM, right? What, what is the collector market like? You know, we're reaching the end of a of a collector market, I would argue. Some right. would argue. Well, we've had um, a we've had a dramatic run up in the last ten years, and right. you know, we're on a twenty five year delay. So, what does that mean for the next ten years, and kind of what's next? Right. Yeah. So we'll see, and we'll talk about that next week. So, until then, uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, and good night. Mm-hmm.